0: Children can be dismissed to Children's Church. Now, on the table here, we are without projector this week. But one has been ordered. So, the old one died. You don't need to pray for it. Um, before I start, I have... Uh, Uh, Two quick announcements. One, there'll be a new members class on August 9th, Saturday. We'll probably do another one in the fall, but if you uh, are not a member and would like to be and are available on that date, please come talk to me. That would be great. Uh, The other announcement is uh, more difficult. Um, Many of you remember Guy and Dion Fauché. They were with us for... About three, four years, and then about four years ago, they moved to New Orleans and are down there uh, still. And uh, a wonderful couple, they lost their youngest son, Jeffrey, this spring to a car accident. And um, they have four grown children, and Jeffrey was the youngest of them. He's uh, early to mid-20s uh, now, and maybe late 20s, Joan, 29 Okay, and he was the youngest of their four. Um, Was in a car accident and uh, uh, died from the uh, effects of the accident uh, about five weeks later. I just found out this past uh, week I had emailed them. And uh, needless to say, it's been a very difficult year. And so I think it would be uh, wise for us to... uh, Pray for them, Mark and Joan. One of you coached Jeffrey, or did both of you? Um, yes, we did. We did. That was a while ago. A while. So, Mark, would you be willing to lead us in prayer for the Fauches and family? I'm sure the uh, Stephen and Kevin, who are the older uh, sons, and uh, then John. Uh, it's spelled Jean, but it's the frne- French pronunciation, John. Uh, she is, uh, was very close to Jeffrey and has now moved down to New Orleans to be with uh, her family. And so if you would lead us in prayer for them. Well, if you would take out your uh, sermon outline, it says Loving Christians, Part 2. They actually have the same title for three sermons, so there's a Part 3 coming. Um, because that is one of the m- real emphasis of 1 John, is uh, the idea that because God loves us, we're to love each other uh, He doesn't give us many caveats, Uh, you know, to love each other when people are being really nice to you or anything like that. It's just you have to love each other, deal with it kind of a thing. So we're in 1 John chapter 3, starting at verse 11, and you can uh, look this up in your Bibles or read along in the outline, 1 John 3, starting at verse 11, for this is the message Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it reminds us again of this need for our lives to be characterized by love. Lord, we know that it's easy to hear about that and to speak about that, but it's hard to do that. So we ask now that you would begin to use your word in our lives to make us, to make our lives be more in alignment with your word and whatever it takes to bring that about we ask that you would do this for us now in Jesus name amen most of you have heard of Benjamin Franklin he is one of our nation's first and most famous do-it-yourselfers in addition to being the uh, ultimate statesman and politician he invented bifocals thank you Ben And uh, he didn't do the progressive thing for those of us who are too vain to let you see the line. Um, But he invented bifocals. He invented the postal service, the public library, and firehouses. And he invented a system uh, for achieving moral virtue. Ben Franklin was disenchanted with the legalistic doctrines he learned as a young Presbyterian. And yet he wanted to be a virtuous or moral person. And so he devised a system to do this. And he wrote about it in his autobiography. He said, it was about this time I conceived the bold and arduous project of arriving at moral perfection. I wish to live without committing any faults at any time. I'd conquer all that either natural inclination, custom, or company might lead me into. As I knew or thought I knew what was right and wrong, I did not see why I might not always do the one and avoid the other. But I soon found I had undertaken a task of more difficulty than I had imagined. He's creating a system for moral perfection. Perfection. And so he listed 13 virtues, wrote them down on a piece of paper. They were uh, temperance, silence, order, resolution, frugality, industry, sincerity, justice, moderation, cleanliness, tranquility, chastity, and humility. And he decided he would focus on one quality a week and keep a daily record of how many times he failed in keeping that quality. He wrote, and, and this is sort of a modern paraphrase because he wrote in sort of that old English, but this is what basically what he said. He said, I tried to become a better person by recording my faults on paper, but I failed so often that I ruined the paper, erasing the old faults to make room for recording all the new faults. I ended up having to use sturdier paper. Somehow I became less and less interested in my program until eventually I gave it up altogether. But even so, I always carried my little book of virtues with me. Ben Franklin was a genius in so many ways, but his system for improving his own morality failed. Genuine morality isn't a product of a system of works, no matter how ingeniously conceived or how Carefully, it's executed. The Bible has its own version of uh, do-it-yourselfers. They were known as the Pharisees. Their program was much more rigorous than Ben Franklin's. And they also failed. They didn't earn God's favor or God's praise. And Jesus called them hypocrites. They cloaked themselves with a form of self-effort and outward godliness, but they were uh, as immoral and corrupt on the inside as they could be. Jesus also said they were whitewashed tombs, clean, shiny, and impressive as marble on the outside, but dead and full of rot on the inside. And so if you hear about that and you think, if a genius like Ben Franklin couldn't improve his own virtues... What hope do regular folk, do normal folk like us have? I mean, if religious zealots are hopeless failures, what hope do we have? Should we just give up? Of course not. God insists that we lead lives of genuine virtue, of real holiness, of authentic morality. But notice the careful foundation that God intentionally lays out in the very first verse of 1 John. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, (coughs) excuse me, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. When John considers the Christian life. He doesn't direct our attention to a set of rules or to a program or to a how. He directs our gaze to a who, to a person, to Jesus. And Jesus is God in in human form. And as God, he is all of God's goodness, all of God's glory, uh, all of God's holiness, all of God's morality with skin and bone. And if morality is visible, if morality is something that can be done, it's something that Jesus has done. It's who Jesus is. Notice John's language here in 1 John 1. It's it's very vivid. John says he's seen Jesus, he's touched Jesus, he's heard Jesus' voice. going to be a long morning. And he wants you to know that Jesus isn't an abstract set of ideas. He's not a long dead teacher or philosopher. He's a living person. If we have any hope of being truly holy, of being authentically moral, it's because we're in relationship with this living person. Jesus Christ is authentic morality. Now, for some people, morality simply means adopting a lifestyle of being a good person, adhering to some prescribed list of do's and don'ts. Many people think that's what Christianity is, just a a list of do's and don'ts. But such a morality always seems so incomplete, And too narrow to adequately uh, address all of the complexities of life when we try to live within a, a morality based on rules we feel stifled and awkward it just doesn't seem to fit it isn't us it isn't authentic and no matter how long we work at it rules never become a natural part of who we are we wear rules like a set of clothes that are too small you tug at the collar and sort of curse the one who made you wear it and many equate christianity with this sort of fixed ill-fitting rules-based morality but really the bible offers the only alternative to a rule-mongering restrictive morality and we find it in first john first john offers a morality that springs from the heart It's an authentic expression of who a person really is. And we're going to see what that is. But before we do, let's review. Let's go back over 1 John real quick. (coughs) Hmm. This is now the ninth sermon in our series on 1 John. We're in chapter 3. We're doing good. And there's some things that I need to remind you we have to learn from John. John. Uh, We must know why the church is a community, and then we must be a community. We must know why Christians are loving, and then we must be loving people. And we must know why Christianity is believable, and uh, then act like we really do believe it. We must know why it is Jesus Christ who lives and reigns and is coming again. And we must be able to tell others in a way they can understand. The purpose of 1 John is to expose mere professors of faith in Christ, non-believers, and to confirm the true possessors of Christ by faith, believers, by means of the application of certain tests of life. We've already talked about uh, some of those. And uh, such is done with a view to grant assurance of eternal life to to true Christians. 1 John 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. However, John's addressing a problem that existed in the church, and that problem was that people couldn't tell who the real Christians were. They couldn't tell the difference between the professors and the possessors who said they believed and who really did believe. there were false teachers who claimed to believe in Christ but refused to live like it. And there was a lot of young Christians in the church, and they're confused because false teaching always leads to false living. And the ethical implications of that are John's concern in his letter. And that's what he's dealing with here. So let's dive into the text. John starts by telling us in verse 11 and 12 that love comes from the heart. Love comes from the heart. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So right off the bat, John draws a very interesting illustration here. Cain and Abel. You can't get much older than that. And it's interesting, he says right there in verse 12, we should not be like Cain. He has no problems drawing a moral and ethical imperative or a command from a biographical account in the Old Testament. John has no problems with that. Lots of theologians have problems with that, but not the Apostle John. He says, take note of this man. Mark some of the qualities and characteristics of this man and don't be like that. Cain was a murderer. I mean, isn't it astonishing? The first person born into this world was a murderer. Could the Bible be more graphic in its description of sin as a consequence of the fall than the description of Cain as a murderer? Now, the Bible doesn't explicitly tell us why it was that Abel's offering was acceptable to God and Cain's offering was not. It may be that Abel offered a uh, blood sacrifice and Cain offered the fruit of the ground. It may be that Abel understood the way of salvation and the way of forgiveness, that without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins. Maybe it was that Abel understood the way of faith and the gospel, and Cain did not. Maybe Hebrews 11 tells us that Abel made his offering by faith, and by implication Cain didn't offer his by faith. Maybe it was a faithless offering. Either way, Cain killed his brother. And why did Cain kill his brother? Not because Abel was evil, but very opposite because Abel was righteous. It's out of jealousy. It's out of envy that Cain killed his brother. And John tells us, we're not to be like Cain. Now, that sounds pretty easy. You first read it. I mean, we don't quite think of ourselves like that, do we? We don't put ourselves in the same category as men and women who've murdered. Yet the Bible is saying, and Jesus is saying, and John is saying, that if we've thought hateful thoughts about a brother, we've committed murder. And John says, don't be like Cain, be like Jesus. And generally, I think that we think that we do pretty good at not hating, particularly when we're not driving. (laughs) But how are we doing at loving? Because love's supposed to be the basic characteristic of the children of God. And if love is the basic characteristic of the children of God, it's because love is an expression of holiness. It's an expression of holiness. Verse 13. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And now John changes direction. He reminds us if we love each other then the world will hate us. Haven't seen that on any evangelistic track lately. Come to Christ and you can be hated too. Somehow I don't think the church marketing guys are going to go for that. But, he says, if you are going to live a life of holiness, of love, of authentic morality, you need to be alert to the fact that there are people who will hate hate you for that we see this in john's gospel we see this with jesus john 15 i'm sure you remember this from the few weeks we spent in john Um, if the world hates you know that it has hated me before it hated you jesus is speaking here john 15 if you are the world the world would love you as its own but because you are not of the world but i chose you out of the world therefore the world hates you Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So we need to be alert to a counterfeit morality, which we might even see in church. A counterfeit morality which says genuinely moral things and believes genuine love makes people happy. And that's not an accurate understanding of the life of Christ. If you look at Jesus' love, you see that people didn't always respond positively to his love. As often as not, people uh, were sad or disappointed or angry with Jesus. But Jesus spoke the truth. He called sin what it was, and Jesus, for the sake of a better kingdom, disappointed people. Eventually he was betrayed and crucified for that. The temptation to equate love with making people happy leads to slavery. It's a lack of love because the focus is on self. And I fall into that trap just as much as any of you. I mean, beneath my efforts to love other people, there's always a self that says, please love me in return. And it looks like morality on the outside, but it's driven by a corrupt, uh, utterly selfish uh, motive on the inside. You will displease people if you love them well. Let me say that again. You will displease people... If you love them well, because to love folks who are sinful, you will say no to them and you will disappoint them. And maybe you'll be persecuted uh, for your faith in some dramatic way. But it happens in simple ways, too. It can be as simple as the look you get from other parents when you tell them you don't want your children to play certain video games at their house. It can be the isolation you feel um, when others exclude you because you don't laugh at their jokes or listen to their ugly gossip. It can be as simple as the rejection you feel when you try to pursue people about a conflict in order to resolve it. They don't want to deal with it. It's distasteful to them, so they shun you and consider you a troublemaker. Those are simple day-to-day ways that we subtly and sometimes not so subtly take fire because we're committed to love people and not just make them happy. For John, it's a matter of life or death. It's not a trivial thing. It's not a peripheral thing. It's not an optional thing. It's a matter of life and death. He tells us, verse 14, Whoever does not love abides in death. If you don't love fellow believers if you don't love the things that god loves if you don't move in the sphere of love then you move in the sphere of death he goes on verse 15 everyone who hates his brother is a murderer note a couple of things here verse 14 he talks about not loving and in verse 15 he talks about hating for john not loving means hating there's no middle ground it's either one or the other. You either love or you hate. There's loving and then there's hating. To not love someone for John is to be a murderer. Well, where'd John get that? Probably from Jesus. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to to the, the hell of fire. Jesus is saying, if you refer to your brother and call him a fool, you've committed murder in your mind in your thoughts. And know how John moves from loving the brothers in the first part of verse 14 to this much more general sense of love in the second part. He's saying this is the basic characteristic of a child of God. It's not a characteristic of the child of the devil. The child of God loves, loves God, loves the things of God, loves the people of God. And it's a litmus test. It's an issue of life or death. You're either on one side or the other. There's no middle ground. John isn't a universalist. He doesn't believe everyone's going to heaven. He says there's children of God and there's children of the devil. And this is what distinguishes the two. It's love. Love is the test. Love is an expression of holiness. Holiness comes from a relationship with Jesus. And John doesn't mince words at all. He says, you either love the world or you love Jesus. Now back in chapter 2, in 1 John 2.15, he said, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. John Piper says that according to that verse, if your love for God is cool this morning, it's because your love for the world has begun to take over your heart. Choke out your love for God. The love of the world and the love of the Father cannot coexist. And every heart loves something. The very essence of our nature is desire. There's nobody in this room who doesn't want something. And John is telling us you'll either want to love or you'll want to hate. Jesus or the world, one or the other. And whichever you love, that love will be tested. Verse 16, that love will be tested. He says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Now, John calls our attention to Jesus himself. To look at Jesus is to look at love. When we look at Jesus, one of the first things we see is that love takes action. Love is not simply words. Jesus didn't hang out in heaven and have a conversation with his Father about how to love us. He took action. He came down and He loved us, and His love is sacrificial. His love is something that is done. And love often requires sacrifice. Love radically orients us towards other people. Love calls us to be outwardly focused on others, try to figure out what they need. And when John points to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, that kind of shakes us up. The magnitude of the sacrifice jars us. We say, wow, that's tremendous sacrifice. That's unbelievable love. And one unintended effect of that is we look at Christ's sacrifice and think that love happens on a tremendous scale, that love must reach this huge level of sacrifice. We ask, do I love my wife? Sure, I love my wife. I'd lay down my life for her. I'd push her out of the way of a speeding car. I think I'd stand up to an intruder in my home, even if it cost me my life. I would sacrificially love my wife, but then I miss the day-to-day opportunities to love at the detail level. It's easy to say I'd love at the huge, big, tremendous, unbelievable, sacrificial level. I'd lay down my life for you. Empty the dishwasher what are you serious (laughs) didn't I just say I'd push you out of the way of speeding car (laughs) John pushes us to think about the level of detail because he goes right from Jesus sacrifice immediately to helping a brother in need he points us to that extraordinary sacrifice but then he points us to simple things It's as simple as observing what another person needs. Does that a person need clothing, food, transportation? Simple, concrete things. It's not waiting around for the dramatic moments. John takes the sacrifice of Christ and makes it applicable to the utterly mundane moments of life. Just recently we were on our way back from vacation. And we had to uh, stop and fill up the rental car with gas before we turned it in at the airport or they charge a whole ton of money. So I went to the gas station uh, about a mile or so from the airport filling the rental car up with gas. And while I'm doing that, this guy comes up to me with a gas can and said he had run out of gas, was out of money, was 10 miles from his in-law's house, and he had his pregnant wife in his truck. Would I please give him a couple gallons of gas so he can get her home? What to do? Could it be a scam? Sure. 50-50 whether it was legit or not. But I went ahead and filled his gas can. And then I asked him if he would like a bottle of cold water that we had in the car. Not a great sacrifice. Couldn't take it through security anyways. So I said, would you like a bottle of... uh, water we have extra one in the car and whether it was a scam or not his eyes lit up when I offered him the bottle of water and as we drove away I watched him put the gas in his truck and hand the water bottle to uh, someone else sitting in the truck was that a big deal probably not did those four gallons of gas in a water bottle make a big difference in that life I'll never know But I'd like to think that along with the gas and the water, he got a little grace, since grace is getting what you don't deserve. And I think that in writing this, the Apostle John was just as interested in little things like gas and water as he was in dramatic sacrifice. You have to start loving others with real deeds somehow. And starting with little things surely isn't a bad way to go. And I wonder this morning... I wonder if God in His providence, has made a need known to you. Maybe somebody in this church, maybe somebody who's lost a job, maybe somebody who's been going through some dark providence, and they're in need, and you have the world's goods. And John is saying, "Here's the test. When all the talk and all the studies and all the sermons and all the worship services are over, here's the test. What are you going to do with that need? You know, when the rubber meets the road, this is it. It's as practical and down to earth as that. Here's somebody in need. God has made that need known to you. What are you going to do with that? John says, that's the test. And there's a response that declares you to be a child of God. And there's a response that declares you to be a child of the devil. And what will your response be? Will you be more than you are now? In 1995, the movie The Lion King came out. Yes, 13 years ago. having watched The Lion King uh, at least 20 times with my kids, I've had a lot of time to find meaning in it. If you remember the movie, uh, you remember that Simba, the son of the Lion King, was framed by evil Uncle Scar for the king's death. And Simba escaped into the jungle and grew up separated from the pride. And he tried to forget everything. He didn't want to remember his past because he felt he was to blame for his father's death. And one night, Simba has a stunning vision of his father, Mufasa, that great James Earl Jones voice. And the Lion King appears to Simba in this glorious cloud and speaks to him and says, you have forgotten me. And what does Simba say? He says, how could I forget you? I would never forget you. And Mufasa replies, you have forgotten me because you have forgotten who you are. Your destiny is to be the king. You have forgotten that. And Mufasa drives the point home by saying to Simba, you are more than you have become. And at that, Simba immediately takes off for home, defeats evil Uncle Scar, and takes his rightful place as the Lion King. Being the king wasn't something he had to do. It was who he was and remembering his identity helped him to move forward to mature the bible says being born again being a child of god means you are more than you have become you have a destiny that calls you forward and you have to grow into that destiny you mature into it it's organic growth it's not layering stuff on the outside to cover up your corruptness instead you increasingly become what you were created to be genuine holiness authentic morality emerges from the inside out when you're in a relationship with Christ we fail before we even begin when we reduce Christianity to a list of rules or personal willpower and abstract philosophy This failure happens subtly when you apply the teachings of Christ to your life as if Jesus were dead. Then you fail. If there's no present activity of Christ in your life, you will fail. You won't live in an authentically moral way. Consider, for example... uh, How you might try to overcome lust. One of the most common sins affects most people, all those who breathe. I know Jesus doesn't want me to lust. Jesus taught that if you lust in your heart, you've uh, committed adultery in your heart. All right, I'll take that seriously. I'll cancel my subscription to the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue. And if the Victoria's Secret catalog shows up at my house, I'll throw it away. And I have an accountability partner. And that's all fine. But if I do that in my own strength, under my own power, and don't bring my weakness to the living Lord, I fail if I don't seek him when I struggle, if I don't ask him for his mercy, if I don't accept his love, if I don't praise him for his purity and his love, I fail. And if you try to put Jesus on like clothing or like a philosophy and you're not living in a real relationship with him, you'll only achieve temporary change. It's like buying a shirt or a dress that looks really good on the mannequin in the store, but when we try it on at home, it looks stupid. Authentic morality is not about a little book of virtues or clothing or philosophy or things you put on. It's about a person. It's about Christ. And authentic morality, holiness, love are all founded upon a relationship with Christ. We're about to come to the Lord's table. This table is for those who are willing to have a life founded upon a relationship with Christ. And so you're invited to this table because you're really good at this morality thing? No. Because you've mastered all the rules of Christianity? No. Because you're one of the more loving people in this room. No.